Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. Now, here's your hosts, Pippin Williamson and Brad Tunar. Welcome to episode 41. Today, Pippin and I have a special guest. Rob Walling will be talking with us about transitioning from developer to entrepreneur and how WordPress developers are very well positioned to make this transition. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode was sponsored very kindly by DreamHost, one of the premier hosting companies for WordPress. They just introduced a brand new managed WordPress product called DreamPress 2. You can go check them out at dreamhost.com. They're offering HHVM, Opcache, PHP 5.5, SSDs, and more. If you are looking for a managed host, either a new one or just want to try one out, it looks like a really great product. Uh, one little perk that is kind of cool that you actually don't see them offering a lot in managed hosting companies is they're also including email addresses with accounts. It seems like a minor feature, but I've actually never seen a managed WordPress host that has it. So go check them out. Uh, you can find it at dreamhost.com slash hosting slash WordPress. DreamPress 2. Awesome. So... Back in 2008, Rob Walling took the leap from software consultant to working on his own products, but he experienced a serious lack of resources and community. So he and Mike Tabor founded Startups for the Rest of Us, the Micropreneur Academy, and Microconf, a podcast, an online school, and a conference, all for self-funded startup founders. He also wrote and published the book, Start Small, Stay Small, a guide for launching your first self-funded startup. And he's the founder of Drip, a SaaS app that does lightweight marketing automation. Rob has helped form a much-needed community for myself and many other self-funded startup founders. I'm grateful for what I've learned through the podcast and the friends I've made through MicroConf. I thank you for all of that, Rob, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Wow, that's quite an intro, sir. Thank you guys for having me. It's my pleasure. <laughs> it's awesome to have you. Yeah, pleasure. Rob, can you start off by telling us like how how came about like what you were doing at the time you decided to go from consulting to products? Like what was the thought process there? So to give you a time frame, uh, I was working as a salary developer from early 2000, late 99, 2000 until 2003 or four. And then I started doing consulting and I had some salary gigs uh, after that. But for the most part, I was in and out of consulting as just a full-time software developer from, you know, 2003, 2004 until about 2008 when I transitioned to products. So I had gone through the, the process of, you know, figuring out how to market my skills. Um, I had coded a bunch of languages, including, you know, PHP, ASP.NET, all that stuff. I eventually focused on .NET as my niche. My thought process for, for doing products was that I looked 15 years down the road or even 10 years down the road and I thought to myself, do I really want to be running on this hamster wheel when I'm 40 or 50 or 55? Like I, I started, it started getting old for me, the process of running to the next client and uh, always trying to finish the pro last project and trying to find the next one. And then I just didn't suit me or really enjoy working with kind of not less technical clients. And I felt like, if I wanted to um, build some type of flywheel and have some equity in something that I wanted to have something that was, you know, able to be sold multiple times, written once and sold multiple times. And so okay, I looked at so both. That's, that's what you mean by flywheel. So it's yes, just, right. Exactly. Yep. Cool. And so I looked at both software products and, you know, like my book and, you know, kind of knowledge uh, that I could share as well. 
That sounds very familiar for probably just about anybody that's gone from consulting the products. Very similar experiences, very similar reasons. In that transition, what do you think one of the biggest challenges was? And was this something that was was ongoing? That did it take a long time, or was it a pretty quick jump? It took a long time. I think I launched my first kind of real effort where I spent several months of side time developing it in like 2002, 2003. I launched another one a couple years later. None of them got traction. They were just really bad kind of B two C ideas, you know, because you read Entrepreneur Magazine and Fast Company and you read the just kind of the press's impression of what you need to do to start a software company and it's way way off and right. that's really because they're, they're always talking about you know the the consumer apps right the, exactly that's that's the ones that make the headlines those are the, the sexy ones yeah yep. exactly yeah and that's once i learned that that's when i was like i need to start talking about what i've discovered and that's as soon as i started making a little bit of money from a little product called dotnet invoice in 2005, I started blogging about that experience, and that's really where kind of the, the community started building around that. Nice. So, with .NET Invoice, like, how did you get into that? Did you did you see a need for that, uh, like a problem there that you needed to solve, or how did that come about? So, .NET Invoice was a product I stumbled upon. Um, there were two developers who were building it, and it was essentially in, in alpha at the time. And I had already had these failed B2C ideas that were not niched down. They did not charge money, you know, trying to have ad revenue models. And for a bootstrapper, that just doesn't, it it really doesn't work very well. And so I was already thinking, I want to start a product that sells kind of to small businesses and that actually sells, you know, for a, a certain, you pay me money, I provide value. And I stumbled upon these two guys building this thing and they were asking for marketing help. And I had already started building up my marketing chops a little bit with my other failed efforts. And so instead of partnering with them, I asked if they would just sell me the code base. It was written in .NET. And um, that's that's really what happened. I just liked that it was selling into businesses. You said that you just, you basically bought it from them. When you, when you did that, how how long did you spend reworking it? I mean, was it very was it pretty much a okay? We purchase it and now we're immediately rebranding and launching it. Or was there a really long lag time where you you dive in, you start to get get more and more familiar with it, and then relaunch? And was it the same product at the end? It was essentially the same product, um, but there were a ton of bugs in it, and that was actually you know, my lack of experience in acquiring products and the lack of information out there on doing this. In 2005, no one was talking about buying a a $10,000 product, you know, a tiny little software product. And so I was basically, it's kind of the Wild West type thing. And so they presented it to me like, yeah, it's launched and it has seven, $800 a month in, in revenue every month. And once I acquired it, it was full of bugs. All the customers were pissed off. They were not providing support. And it really had about two or three hundred dollars in revenue. They had had a couple months of seven or eight hundred, but it was a short spike due to some relaunch. You know, is that kind of stuff. So the further I got into it, the further I was like, "Oh crap!" I just wrote an eleven thousand dollar check, and I need to figure out how to make this right. Like, how to do? How do I make that investment worthwhile? And so I did. I mean, that's the the beauty of being a developer is that I could dig into their code, and I fixed something like twenty five pretty hefty showstopper bugs over the course of a couple weeks as I ferreted them out and customers reported. Anything customers reported, I fixed right away and I was trying to build confidence back into the customer base. And so it took me a few weeks. 
of essentially working 60 hour, 70 hour a week because I was working a day job at the time, or I should say like day consulting. And uh, I fixed all the bugs and relaunched it under the same name and the same website. It already had some SEO traffic. And uh, that w- then I was kind of off to the races. I actually raised the price shortly after that. And I did get it up um, like the second month after I acquired it. I think the first month it did 200, the second month it did 900. And then I, I raised the price and it was up over 2000 a month within a couple months. That's awesome. Were you able to continue growing it to the point where it was sustaining you alone? Or no. did that stay as a side project? It stayed as a side project. I got it. It was always between about 2000 and 5000 a month, which is nice side income, but not enough to, to support the family. You know, I was married with a child and a mortgage at the time, living in California, no, no less. So it's right. pretty, you know, there's, there's some expenses there. And I, I spent time trying to grow it. I mean, it had, it had a couple really good traffic sources, basically organic search. Um, I did some AdWords, and then I had some good referrals from some .NET forums because we give the, or we give away the source code or include the source code when you purchase. So it, it's really a good thing for like a developer or freelancer to buy and then customize for clients. So that was the big, the big difference because, you know, why would you purchase this one-time sale product rather than go and use FreshBooks for five bucks a month? And that was really the differentiator. Trying to branch out beyond those traffic sources and the fact that it's a one-time sale made it really, really difficult to grow past the plateau point, which was between, really it was between about two, 2,000 to 3,500 is where it plateaued. I had some peaks up into five grand when I do one-time promotions. So it was not a business that I, you know, after spending several months or frankly a year and a half trying to grow it, I realized, oh, this one-time sale thing is really kind of a killer. How can I start thinking about recurring revenue? Because then you can build and grow over time. If you were starting over today, if you were just transitioning now would you do things differently do you think i think i would do a couple things differently the first is i would today it's just a different landscape so i would find a community of people there was no community around this self-funded kind of mentality and today there are there's you know the our community with microconf startups for the rest of us there is the tropical mba community which is more digital nomads there's the wordpress business community where you know i mean you guys and uh you know john turner phil dirks and dave rodenbaugh these are you know a bunch of guys who are who are doing this similar bootstrap thing i would have found that uh, i i would have found kind of where i wanted to be and learned from those people because there's all the stuff that took me whatever you want to call it, eight years to learn. I think you can learn in, in like a year now if you get some guidance and you get out there and start launching. Um, the, the, the pace is accelerated. And I also think that, that these days, you know, productized cons- consulting or productized services is a good way to get started. We were just talking offline about, you know, Craig Hewitt with Podcast Motor. I think right. that's a great example. And I think Brian Castle is another example of folks who've done that well. I would consider doing that and kind of transitioning out of consulting I think it would have gone a lot faster for me than, than try, truly trying to jump right in to, uh, to selling software products because there's so much time investment up front to get those going. Right. Do you think you would have been able to, to avoid the, the shiny idea of, of selling software or, or software as a service, though, versus productized services? Like coming from a development background, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like you have to ask yourself what's more important to you if you really want to stick in the code and you really want to sell software, then do that. But for me at the time, I, 
I really just wanted to get out of consulting. I did not like the hamster wheel and I didn't like dealing with the clients. So I actually owned Dotnet Invoice. Then I acquired an e-commerce website that sold beach towels. It was a drop shipping <laughs> website and I cranked that up to a couple grand a month. Then I acquired an e-book about bonsai trees and I cranked that up to a thousand a month. You know, that's how eventually how I quit consulting was I needed, my number was $8,000 a month that I needed. I was making 20, between 20 and 25 grand a month consulting, but I, I didn't need that much to live. So I talked to my wife and said, what's the least amount that I can make and still hit the budget. And my number was like 7,500 or eight grand. And so I was trying to cobble that number together by any means necessary. So I do think that my motivation was to kind of do what it took, um, but but it's it's to each his own, you know, of, right. of deciding what what are you willing to do and what's the most important thing. If you want to take longer time and, and just do software, that's totally cool. Right, because it takes longer to do software yep. than most, most things. That's right. You've, talked about the stair-step approach to starting your own business uh, or becoming a self-funded entrepreneur. Can you tell me and us a little bit about that and what it's about? Sure. Yeah, the idea behind stair-step is just not to start at the with the most difficult product type. And typically, I consider the, the hardest type of product to start is a recurring revenue product that has a lot of different traffic sources because you you're just in deep, deep competition. It's hard to get folks to buy. It's hard to build something people want. You have to learn a ton of stuff all at once and it's hard to maintain. So it's like, if you, whether it's SaaS, right? Software as a service, is, it's, a hard, it, it's hard to build a SaaS app compared to a WordPress plugin. And it's just gonna take a lot more engineering time and you have infrastructure and all that stuff. Um, so the idea behind StairStep is that is that there are three steps. And the first step is to find a product that is a one-time sale and has a single traffic channel. And so that channel could be organic SEO, could be paid advertising, it could be the WordPress.org repository, uh, it could be on Amazon. There's a bunch of different ways to find that. But learn how to essentially learn how to rank in that you know, learn how to get, uh, get traffic that converts from that single traffic source. And then once you have that dialed in, you'll have some income and then repeat that process. And moving to step two is essentially doing that multiple times. So the example, of course, here would be, might be build a single WordPress plugin and get that up to a thousand bucks a month, then repeat that until you have enough money to buy out all of your time. And step two, step two is basically buying out your consulting time or being able to quit your job and having the time to, uh, to really focus on your products. And then step three is moving to recurring revenue. And I don't necessarily think it's for everyone, but I, having been through this for the past 15 years, finding something with recurring revenue is really a nice, it's a nice way to even out uh, your risk and to diversify and to um, have something that can grow over time rather than just plateau. Right. So are you, when you say recurring revenue, do you mean uh, monthly recurring or annual recurring or does it matter? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think of it more as a monthly recurring, like a, a SaaS or a subscription e-commerce. Annual, unless you can, unless you can really get that, that pump primed and every month you're getting that annual revenue, you know, so it's not a once a year thing, but you really are getting it every month. Right. I, I think that the monthly is, is a better way to go for bootstrappers. Um, right. yeah, I think it's more monthly, 
would generally be it, yeah what you just said more consistent and it will it's a lot a lot easier to predict where you are month to month yeah whereas if everything is annual it's going to take a little bit longer before you can really accurately predict where you are when the next set of recurring payments comes through that's right it's you're going to have more spikes up and down and you're also going to have a lot of credit card failures which is a real, real bummer. Like we have some annual plans with one of my SaaS apps called Hittail. And some months we'll have 50% of those annual plans will fail due to credit cards either being expired or them rejecting them because it's this once a year cost that, that the credit card company doesn't recognize. So there's a pretty substantial uh, failure rate. In the WordPress space, it's pretty typical um, to do annual recurring. Mm-hmm. So, so basically you sell, you know, the, the code, like a zip file of the code. Uh, but that's really not what you're selling. <laughs> you're really selling uh, support. What else, Pittman? What are access we to updates. Yes, access to updates. So, yeah, annually, if you don't renew, you don't get new versions of the plugin and you don't get access to email support. So there's incentive to renew, but it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely a lower renewal rate than if you're running a SaaS app and there's, you know, if they don't renew after a month, the lights go out, you know? Right, right. Yeah, because you don't have them on actual annual subscriptions, right? You have to basically try to it's pay them man- via email. Right, it's a manual opt-in. Yeah. yeah, so it's a lower lower percentage. I was actually talking to some people about that at MigraConf uh, a few weeks ago. They told me, like, they were, they were wondering why the hell I'm not doing uh, automatic billing after you know the first year you know why i'm not automatically charging people's credit cards and i really didn't have a good answer for them and i it's really the only answer i could say is well most other wordpress plugins don't do that (laughs) and that's not a very good reason it would actually be convenient for a lot of people if they didn't have to do anything after a year that's a uh an area that we're uh, my whole team and i are right now actively diving into Uh, we had a conversation with with some other uh, product owners at uh, Pressnomics, a WordPress business conference uh, back in January. And they casually mentioned like what their renewal rates, because they had, they had opted in to do automatic billing, and w- then we were comparing it to ours, which was manual renewals. And the difference was like 60% difference. Theirs was up in like 85, and ours was down below 20. And it was just <laughs> crazy. Uh, and so that's exactly what we're working on. As long as you make it clear to folks up front that you're doing it, I don't see any reason why that would be a bad thing, you know? Yeah, I don't either. exactly. I, I, and like I said, it's really just, see, in the WordPress space, what I've experienced is most people just copy each other when it comes to business because it's such a, I think it, the people that are doing business in the WordPress space are just so green when it comes to business. They really just copy what they, they see other people doing. Um, and I, I'm personally saying this because that's what I did when I started, right? I, mm-hmm. I did it. Yeah. For I looked sure. at other companies you know, and I, what are they doing? They're, you know, what they're doing is working. So let's just do that. You know, I think in a way though, it is a, it is a good testament to building, building a WordPress plugin or a theme is that good first step into building a productized business. It's an easy way to get into that kind of business is to build a simple product like that. Um, and most people that are that are taking that first step, like uh, what you mentioned with a stair step approach, most of these are people that ha- are not familiar with building a product business from the start. When there is a company that comes in and builds a new product, usually you don't see them mimicking what everyone else is doing the same way. 
But when we see independent developers come in and build their their first plugin or their first theme, it is very similar. Um, and I think that's just these are people that are new to business and they're working on building their business out. With that, do you think that in order to really make this transition uh, from consulting to to a productized business, do you think you need to learn marketing and sales to truly make that transition, or is that something that will just come as you go? I think that marketing is a critical skill to learn for developers or for anybody launching a software product. I don't think sales necessarily is. And you know, the difference there is like marketing is being able to write decent copy to communicate a value proposition and to drive some traffic and then convert that into money, essentially convert it into buyers. Whereas sales, I view more as like, you know, one-on-one conversations. I think if you're a consultant, you already know what sales is. You know, it's, it's having the conversations with clients and doing higher dollar stuff. I don't, I would never say it, you always need this, but I will say, you know, 99% of the successful fo- uh, developers I've seen make the transition from developer to entrepreneur, they definitely learn how to market. You don't le- need to learn how to market through every channel because you're not going to use, you may not use paid advertising, you may not u- use television and radio ads, but you do need to learn how to communicate your value and then how to drive traffic through some channel. Again, whether that's, you know, something like SEO or just how to rank well and be noticed in the wordpress.org plugin repo. Right. One thing some developers do to get started and kind of avoid this. Um, and I think we've talked about this last, last episode, Pippin is, is that, uh, they just put their plugin on a marketplace. And so then they have that traffic. And even if their marketing is pretty weak, they still can do okay because they have that traffic from the the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's a good way to go, or is it is would it be better just to go out on your own straight away? Well, I I think that's I would almost view that as a marketplace like uh, like Envato type thing. Or yes. Yeah. Okay. So my, I've never put something on on one of those uh, platforms. I do know that they take a chunk of your revenue and that they, the price tends to go down, right? You, you mm-hmm. can't charge as much It's the app store dilemma, like Apple app store, you can charge 99 cents. You can't charge 20 bucks. Like we used to be able to for utilities. So I think it's a nice, maybe it's, it's that the 0.5 step <laughs> right, you know, before right. step one. I mean, I, I, I think it's great to get some recurring revenue, to get experience supporting a plugin or a theme, to get experience, just having someone in the real world use it and to understand what it's like to, to have a product and maybe make a few hundred bucks a month. But I, I think it would be really hard. I mean, you would need a, a whole bunch of um, plugins in in the Envato marketplace to actually make, you know, what someone in the U.S. needs to quit their job. Let's say it's eight grand or ten grand a month. That would be a lot of of ten dollar and fifteen dollar plugins going out on your own. I mean, we we all know that you can charge more. You keep more of it for yourself. You can you know grow that market more. So, right. I I, I think it's it's up to how fast you want to move. But I, I don't think it's a bad approach. I do, th- I do th- feel like it's maybe training wheels. You know, it's kind of a step on the <laughs> do way. Do you think that, um, so I'll, I'll pose this question to you coming from someone that was actually able to use Envato as a point where at, at my peak, I was at eight grand a month through the Envato marketplaces. And that was primarily from two plugins. Nice. Uh, so do you think that for someone, now I don't, I don't sell there anymore, but do you think that someone who was able to build it up to a success and to build it up to where they can, uh, they can sustain themselves. Is there a, a really significant reason for them to move away from that? 
Or if it basically, the question is, if it works for you, why move? Well, first, I'd be interested to find out why you moved or why you don't use them anymore. Sure. Um, so I personally chose to move because I wanted more control over yeah. pricing, over customers, over marketing, those kinds of things. Now, there are other people that I know who stuck around and they, they do very well for themselves. They can be up to, say, uh, 10, 20, 30K a month. Nice. Uh, and I think it's an interesting question of, are you potentially throwing away a lot of revenue by staying? That was going to be my answer, <laughs> was that I don't think this is a yes or no question of yes, you should. once you learn it, you should move up to step one, two, or three. I think it's as you put it, you are know that you are leaving revenue on the table by doing this. Right. And if you really don't want to learn marketing and you just want to write the code and put it on Envato, then that's your choice. I mean, I'm, I'm Mr. Like, make your lifestyle choices, right? I've designed <laughs> my whole, all of my business around being able to spend time with my kids. I live where I want to. I live in a non-tech you know, tech hub. I haven't raised funding. I don't answer to anyone. So I'm a believer that you should do what, what you want to do as long as you really understand what the plus and minuses of those decisions are. I think that's an excellent answer. Why is SaaS the ne next step after a WordPress plugin? Why not you know, keep building plugins and maybe have some recurring revenue from those plugins? Yeah, I actually really like this question because I, I have this stair-step model you know, that I've talked about, and I, it's not the only way to go. It's just the way that I see, I've seen a lot of people going, and it's a way I see people kind of level up their experience and not try to dive into the deep end. I put SaaS at the top of that because recurring revenue is it's just, it's really cool. I mean, it is really good to have monthly recurring revenue. It's so much easier to grow a business, but it's not necessarily the end all be all. If, if all, if what you want to do is WordPress plugins, then having a suite, you know, a portfolio of 10 or 15 or 20 of them, it's not a bad way to go. You get the you get a similar diversification of across a lot of customers and a lot of revenue streams. I think that the biggest hangup I've had or that I've seen with folks who, um, you know, who come and ask how they can level up and they have several WordPress plugins is no, no one's been able to crack this nut of getting WordPress plugins to have recurring revenue, right? There's, mm. there is a, a flat amount of uh, money you can make each month, but it's all one-time sales and then those kind of annual renewals. But I haven't heard of any nice, I haven't heard of enough monthly recurring revenue success stories to make me feel like you could totally go to that third step with uh, a WordPress plugin. Right. I guess it ties into what we were talking about before, about annual versus monthly recurring right. and the advantages of monthly. And, and I guess that's also why <laughs> we're starting to see uh, some WordPress uh, plugin businesses actually go to SaaS. Um, Event Espresso has just launched SaaS. Opt-in Monster just launched mm -hmm. a SaaS like last week. And so I think that's showing kind of a maturity or a maturing of, of the people in the WordPress business space. So it's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Rob, let's talk about Drip for a little bit now. So as you built several products over the last few years, at what point did you start working on Drip? And actually, maybe before even answering that question, maybe tell listeners what is Drip? Sure. So Drip is a SaaS app. And it started as a, an email marketing app, kind of a competitor to, let's say, MailChimp or Aweber. But it's now leveled up itself into this space called marketing automation, 
which is essentially email marketing plus a bunch of other stuff added on. It's being able to, to tag uh, subscribers and move them in and out of lists and uh, basically do behavioral email as well as lead scoring and all that kind of stuff. So there, it's kind of this next level. I, th I believe it's where all email marketing is headed. I think we'll all get there eventually, but um, that's what Drip is now. Right, so this is your your foot in the door, I guess, is it? Yeah, in yeah. essence, yep. <laughs> yep. And competitive advantage. That's right, yeah. And and I started we started working on Drip about two and a half years ago, and we launched it, uh, boy, I'm trying to think, it's like 18 months ago, I think, is when it, it went live. Right. And you, you've gone through uh, several pivots, haven't you, through, yeah, through one, that process? It was really one big one. It was, um, there's actually... If, if you're interested in hearing more about this, there's a we recorded nine hours of audio over the course of about 10 months, all taking place. It's behind the scenes conversations between my co-founder and I. His name is Derek. He's the technical co-founder. And we talked every week about what we should be building and why. And you can just hear the agony in our voice of not, not knowing what we're building. And, and the pivot happens. And then, you know, at the end, success. And that's at startupstoriespodcast.com if you're interested. It's just one two-hour episode that we edited down. But in essence, the pivot was from this kind of email marketing, you know, slash autoresponder provider um, that had a great, I mean, the UX and the UI was, was phenomenal. Derek's really good at UX. And it was a super simple onboarding. We did a bunch of, we did concierge for people, you know, really easy setup, but it just wasn't differentiated enough from the myriad of other email marketing providers out there. And so the, the pivot that you're talking about was learning that a lot of folks were kind of our most, more advanced folks were requesting automation features, right? How can I tag someone with this? You know that they that they maybe that they bought this plugin, or maybe that they're interested in, you know, the topic of of SEO or of pay per click, and then being able to move them into different uh, campaigns, different autoresponder sequences based on that information, and that kind of stuff, just more advanced uh, interactions. And so we started building that out. And by the time we launched that, it, everything turned around and churn went way down and signups went up. Well, see, those automation features are some of the, the most powerful I've ever used in any kind of platform uh, that really let you do really awesome things. So as a developer uh, and as an entrepreneur and a product creator, do you still write code for Drip now? Or are you more of, I guess, the vision behind Drip? I, having been a developer for, you know, a decade or more professionally, I, we decided to use Ruby on Rails and I don't know Ruby on Rails. And so I don't <laughs> write production code and I know it just well enough to break things, to be nice. honest. So yeah, I, I love to code. Like it's how my mind works. I, I started writing code when I was eight years old on an Apple IIe. And so that is, it is who I am. And I will write code until the day I die, but I don't write production code right now. <laughs> uh, and that's just a, a matter of, you know, for me to learn Rails and get good enough at it to push stuff into production would take so much time away from wh where I can provide more value, which is, you know, more of the marketing side and the vision and talking with customers and that kind of stuff. So regretfully, um, I don't write much code anymore. I think that's something that anybody who goes from, from a developer, whether you're working on products or consulting to being the person or one of the main people behind a business, whatever the structure of that business is, is something that we all kind of go through. Uh, this is something that I'm finding in my in my personal work over the last couple of years as we've been building up our team, 
that I'm finding myself writing a lot less code. And sometimes it makes me a little sad uh, because I really love code. I love the problem solving. And then other times I, I, I can step back and realize, you know, maybe I'm more valuable in other areas. That's okay. Yep. Yep. And I think that I don't think everyone needs to move away from code. I don't think because you start a product business and then you hire some help that you have to step away from code. As of, I mean, you know, I, I quit the consulting in 2008 and I was writing code pretty consistently up until very late 2013 and I could have kept doing it. There's no reason I stopped, you know, that I, or I shouldn't say there's no reason, but there's no reason I had to stop. The reason I did stop is because I wanted to tackle this much bigger, harder problem. And I went from basically being a solo founder with no employees to now there's five of us full time. So I've made a very, I made a very deliberate decision in 2013 to do this, you know, and that, that was to step away from the code and hire folks to do it. But yeah. you, you certainly do not have to do this. If you on the flip read. side, you could also hire people to do the other things so that you can focus on the code. It's definitely yeah. a choice that I think everybody has. Yeah, that's a good point, Pippin, because I st still see your name popping up in the commit logs uh, for EDD <laughs> and Affiliate WP. Um, whereas myself, I, I can't, I, I've, I've hired all developers, <laughs> right? So I have to do everything else. Um, and, and I did it that way because I felt I was, I could pick a good developer, but I, I wouldn't be good at picking, uh, you know, a good marketing person or, or something like that. Right. So I, I that's kind of the corner I've painted myself into just out of necessity. What are the roles that you filled Pippin that are, that are non-developer? Uh, the, the one, the, the longest standing role that I've had that is still very much a primary role is customer support. Uh, I, I believe pr pretty firmly that, uh, people that are like maybe the leads behind projects or products, uh, I think having their face and their voice in support is very valuable for branding. So that's one. The biggest one is just overall management. So, uh, building the company from the administration work to working with lawyers, to working with accountants, to figuring out how and when to hire people. All of that overhead is kind of where the role that I've stepped into mostly. And beyond that, then also some of the overall, I don't know if I would say marketing exactly, because I don't do that much actual marketing, but maybe figuring out how to market and then working with the people that produce the actual marketing material. Right. What about you, Rob? What what roles have you filled so that you don't uh, that you don't do anymore? Yeah, the f the first one that I always fill with a new product is support, tier one email support. So when we launched Drip, I did email support for about uh, somewhere between thirty and sixty days, just enough to learn what the common questions were, and then had someone fill that in for me. Do you do that because you think it uh, it gives you a better understanding of how people are receiving the product? Yeah, in the early days when you're building something, it's so so much in flux that the feedback is not just how do I do this, it's why can't it do this, can it do this other thing, and being able to be that close to it and move this quickly to where it's like, we, I mean, literally, we'd get a support email, I'd look at it, and I'd turn around to Derek and say, can we build this by noon? And he'd say yes, and like an hour later, or two hours <laughs> later, I'd email the guy and be like, yep, nice. we have that in now. Like, and And, you know, if you have one or two layers of support between you and the customer, that doesn't happen. You, right. That doesn't scale. You can't do that forever. But especially when you're building something that's kind of new and still trying to figure it out, that's helpful. I think it's a really great way to build very loyal customers from the beginning. 
For sure. If you can build five loyal customers in the first month or two, that's way more valuable than 50 that are just going to move on. Exactly. Yep. And they, they, if they love your support and they love the product, they start telling other people. Um, and that was snowballs. Yep. The first 20 to 30 customers we had with drip, I not only handled all the support, but I personally, I would either jump on Skype calls with them. I would import their list for them. I mean, I was doing everything completely not scalable, but it, it really made them advocates of, of drip and, and got them on board, you know? Right. Nice. Is there any big technical challenges? I know you mentioned earlier about SaaS and how uh, the infrastructure can be a big challenge. Is that, did you guys run into that with Drip? Is is that was that a big part of building Drip? Yeah, there have been a lot of, of scaling challenges because it's it basically does real time analytics. So it's not a typical CRUD app where you're just creating, reading, updating, deleting stuff from a database like invoicing software would be. You actually install JavaScript on your website so that we can detect when your subscribers are cruising around, if they see your pricing page, if they click a link, if they do stuff. So we have you know 500 requests per second hitting our server to track that for all of our customers. So it's a non-trivial application. And about every, I'd say every three to six months, we, re, we have to come back and either optimize queries, upgrade database, partition stuff, you know, just do stuff to make everything work. Um, so it, I think there's been more technical challenge in a typical SaaS app, and a typical SaaS app is still fairly complicated to get up and running and, and you know, maintain. Right. So right. are you guys using uh, AWS or what's we are. your... Yeah. Yep, we're on EC2. We looked okay. at, you know, we looked at per, uh, Heroku. We were on Heroku Postgres for a while. Um, but there's just, it's, it's quite expensive. And at the scale we're at, where we have million, uh, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of rows at this point, it becomes pretty expensive. Just being able to, to be near the bare metal is, is better for us at this point. I would love it if someone had a platform as a service that made this all easier, but it always seems to be a little too limiting uh, for what we wanted to do. Right, right. <laughs> you sacrifice flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. So... I think this is a, uh, related to technical challenges. I think this is something that people always want to hear about, it's something I'm always interested in. Um, was there ever a technical challenge or mistake or anything like that that was so severe that it just about killed everything? If so, um, what was it and how did you survive? Yeah. I mean, there was a time really early on. There were two things. One, there was a time where we had maybe an eight-hour delay in email sending. So at like two in the morning, Sidekick, which Ooh. is a queuing mechanism, went offline. And it wasn't until, I guess it wasn't eight hours, because it's about probably seven or eight in the morning. So it was like six hours, no email sent. And that is catastrophic for an email provider, right? Right. Now, luckily, that was when we had 30 customers. And uh. I knew all the customers, you know, because I had onboarded all of them. And it turns out there were only, we were so small, and it was so early that we only had Literally, it was maybe 100 emails that should have sent because it was the middle of the night. And so we figured out who's, you know, who's the, who should have uh, sent. And I emailed them by hand and said, look, this is what happened. 22 of your emails did not go out last night. Totally sorry. We put stuff in place to fix it, you know. So that was really a big deal. Though. That stressed me out. And now we have safeguards in place. The other one was we started having database performance issues. The Kind of the first time it happened where reports 
kind of slowed down more and more and we just couldn't figure them out. This was also early. We put a checkbox in our admin area where we could basically turn off all the visual reports for a single account. And so as people would email us, we would say, we're, we're going to turn off your report so that you can use our app. That was a hack and it felt awful, but it was what we had to do to keep the app up. And it took us almost a week to get everything fixed. And so there were people who had data, they could send emails, they could do everything, but they didn't really have the visual reports that we, we have. That was, again, that was like, you know, 15, 18 months ago. Yeah. Um, but I thought I was pulling my hair out. <laughs> I remember, I remember we had a similar uh, reporting glitch. We had a bug at one point that was, it was basically, it would just take a site down uh, if, if you had over a certain number of records in your database and our solution was uh well disable your reporting you can take sales you can send out product emails and you can deliver to your customers but you can't see what you earned that definitely sympathize with it's not a good solution no it's like a temporary and you have yeah. to say look this is a temporary hack please don't be mad we're going to fix it this is our number yep, one priority absolutely. right now and like everyone's working on it you know yeah right rob it's about time to uh wrap this up but I'm going to give you a chance right now. Is there anything that you want to pitch about Drip? Anything you want to say? Any comments at all? Now's your chance. You know, I, I would say that if you are launching a, uh, a product of any kind, that one of the biggest things that has moved the needle in my products over the year is some type of email list. It's building a list. You don't have to use Drip. Drip starts at $50 a month. So your first day, it's probably not worth doing. But MailChimp is a great, I've, I use MailChimp for years. And uh, if you're not doing email marketing, I would say start building a list um, because you will, the only regret you will have is that you didn't start doing it sooner. That's my regret. Yep, I honestly my didn't start too. doing it until I did a little bit over the last few years, but didn't start getting serious about it and serious about getting automation in um, until, I don't know, eight months ago. And the difference it made was just phenomenal. I think there was a while there, it felt like email was like the bastard child of the internet or something, <laughs> where everyone kind of hated it, even even the people that should have been using it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, that's how it felt to me. Um, and then it's just, it's kind of, at least in the business community, it's really like surged in, in recent years. I, I, I just remember at one point having like 20,000, 25,000 people on a list and realize I haven't emailed them in eight months. Wow. Like, what, what are we doing? Why? And I'm so glad that changed. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, Rob, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at, at Rob Walling. And if folks like listening to podcasts, um, I talk about this kind of stuff, you know, the business of software and, and self-funding over at Startups for the Rest of Us. Awesome. Awesome. It's been great having you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, one more quick shout-out real quick to uh, our sponsors, uh, DreamHost and their new product, DreamPress. Go check them out. And also our permanent sponsors, the WP Ninjas and their awesome product, NinjaForms, which you can find at ninjaforms.com. Thank you to them for helping us get this show off the road. Thanks, everybody.